Be sure to check out Sylvie's Love, now on Amazon Prime Video. Set in Harlem in the 1950s, a young woman meets an aspiring saxophonist in her father's record shop, and their love ignites a sweeping romance that transcends the changing times. Watch Sylvie's Love, directed by Eugene Ash, starring Tessa Thompson and Namdi Asamoah, and produced by Moth Board member Gabrielle Glore on Amazon Prime Video. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of this radio show. And in this hour from the State Theater in Portland, Maine, we bring you a live Moth event produced in partnership with the Maine Public Broadcasting Network. One note, Moth stories sometimes deal with difficult conditions people find themselves in, like trauma and loss. And the first two stories might be upsetting to some listeners. The theme of this evening is Eyewitness. And your host is author and Moth podcast host, Dan Kennedy. I am thrilled to be in Portland, Maine. I, of all the places I've landed in the last four days, I have never seen so much beauty. I have never seen a place so nice. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Just gorgeous. And, uh, and the people are so friendly that I spent, I, I, it, you see that? Those people were saying, we are, they're just concurring. I spent about the first 20 minutes as a New Yorker just going, what's the catch? What do they want from me? And uh, a girl smiled at me out of, for no reason. I did nothing. I, I was simply walking, smiled at me and said, hey, have a fabulous day. And my first thought was, the world is going to eat her alive. It's just, she's going to get crushed. We have to protect her. We have to keep her here in Portland, Maine. Uh, but it is uh, wonderful. Not two minutes out of the airport, and I saw a wolf, which was um, a sculpture, it turns out. Because I saw it, and I was like filled, because I was like, this place is beautiful, because the whole way you're flying in, you're like, it's gorgeous. I can't believe this is in America. And then you like land and then I'm going out and I see the wolf and I go, my God, there's a wolf. Okay, and I was for a minute filled with boyish wonder about my adventure and then I realized it's made of wire. Uh, it is beautiful, whoever did the sculptures at the airport, they are gorgeous. And um, I, um, I then, I kind of recalibrated it. It's not like I got cynical again, but I did sort of lose some of the boyish wonder about my journey to Portland. I said, well, it's, you know, I haven't seen a real wolf yet. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm waiting for that to happen. Now, I think, I think we've covered all the bases. Are you guys ready to, uh, to get our first storyteller up here? Yeah? Yeah. <clears throat> when I asked our storyteller, What's one thing you hope to see happen in your lifetime? He said, I'd like to live in Hawaii and in Maine with my fiance. Pretty sweet deal, right? Please welcome Paul Knoll. It was a pretty typical school day. Uh, 800 students at the high school where I worked as a guidance counselor. 
And I was about to go into a meeting with a college representative who was gonna meet with some juniors and seniors and try to recruit them to his college. And the guidance secretary pulled me aside and she whispered into my ear, Paul, there's a student in the front office. He's got five hostages and he has a gun. Sally, who are the hostages? It turns out it's the two assistant principals and three secretaries. Our principal was out of the building at the time. Who's the student? It's Andy. My heart sinks because I talk with Andy every day. He's actually a, a, a teddy bear. It, it's not adding up in my book. I don't understand this. This is four and a half years before Columbine. There's no protocol in place. All we know how to do is get out if there's a fire. So I call the police. And the dispatcher immediately gets me to uh, an officer. And he said, Paul, here's what you need to do. You need to get all the students and staff out of the building but you can't pull the fire alarm. You can't alert Andy to the fact that they're leaving the building because he might start shooting. Here's a good time for me to tell you that I'm on crutches, <laughs> recovering from major knee surgery and I can't put weight on my knee. And I'm thinking, how are we gonna get 800 students out of here? But a buddy of mine, Dave, walks into the guidance office and I let him know what we gotta do. There's two, two big wings, and I send him to one wing, the technology wing, and I go to the classroom wing. I'm hobbling there, and on the way, I, I stop in the, the conference room, and I say to the college representative, uh, we got a guy with a gun in the office. You might wanna get out of here, but use a side door, or you can stay if you want, but I would get out of here. And he leaves. And I hobble down to the classroom wing, and I go from classroom to classroom, and I, I just directly look at the teacher, and I say, you need to listen to me. You need to listen and do exactly what I say. You can't ask any questions. You need to leave now. You need to leave as quietly as you can and don't take anything with you. And every teacher knew that this was serious, but I remember specifically Patty, these beautiful brown eyes just getting bigger and bigger as they connected with mine. And she knew something was terribly wrong. And she looked at her students and she said, okay, let's do exactly what Mr. Knoll said. Every classroom left, every student left. I think one of my colleagues did the second floor because I, I don't remember getting up there. But I think within two to three minutes, we had that classroom, that wing cleared. You could hear a pin drop when everyone was leaving. That's how quiet everyone was. The last teacher's leaving the, the classroom wing and I decide I'm just gonna stay put because I knew I was the only one that was in touch with the police. 
And then all of a sudden, Andy comes around the corner. He's got two assistant principals with him. He's about 15 feet away. He points the rifle at me. I'm not much of a, I've never hunted, but it's a 30-06 with a scope. And he's got bullets wrapped around his waist. And they're two to three inches long. And I, was, I got scared, but I stayed calm. Andy's about 6'2", maybe 6'1". He's bigger than me. And without the gun, I wouldn't want to take him on. I'm certainly not going to take him on with the gun. And he said, uh, Mr. Knoll, I want you to get all the students in front of the building. And I'm in a little bit of a quandary here because as a counselor, I like want to save Andy, this guy who I talk with every day. Some days he calls me Paul. We're kind of friends. But then we just cleared this building of 800 students. What's my priority here? Do I do what he wants so that everyone stays safe? I don't know where the answer came from, but I just said to Andy, I'm sorry, Andy. I can't do that. And I turn my back to him, and I start to leave, honestly thinking he might fire his gun at me, being a little ticked off that I didn't listen to him. He didn't. And as I'm leaving the building, I could tell he was behind me, and he was going to follow out the building. And when I get out of the, the building, I realize, oh my god, we have just sent all these students into a cage. Our evacuation area for fire drill is the softball field. So now all these students are enclosed in this fenced-in area, and then we got a student coming out of the building with a rifle. I feel if I start yelling, he'll come out quicker. Remembering the police officer said, do this quietly. So I take my crutches and I just start waving frantically at the top of this hill, looking down on everyone, and I'm hoping they understand. Get, leave, run, he's coming out, go. But they're not moving. They don't know what the waving of the crutches is about. And Andy's a couple steps away from coming outdoors. So I go around the corner to be out of his sight so I could keep waving, but no one's moving. And then I hear the gunshot. And I see people running. And I just, I thought maybe the shot was coming my way again, but clearly after a couple seconds, you know, it didn't come your way. And for me, the, I felt like I needed to get back in the building. So I take a few minutes to get around to the front side. I don't know what happened. I don't know where the shot went. I decided to go back to the guidance office. And I call the police again. I said, this is Paul. What do you want me to do? How can I help? And they said, we don't know where Andy is, but he's back in the building. Can you find him? Can you get him to pick up the phone? We need to talk to him. We want to negotiate with him. I'm not sure how to do that, so I decide I'm just going to stay put. And I just, from the guidance office, I just keep calling the, the main office. Pick up, pick up. Come on, someone pick up, pick up. I just kept trying, and I kept trying. Eventually, the assistant principal, John, picked up. Thank God. John, John, you need to get Andy to pick up the phone. The police want to talk to him. 
is Andy there? And he said, yeah, Andy's here. So Andy did pick up the phone. He did get into a discussion with the police. So in the meantime, I call my, my link with the police department back and I say, all right, Andy's talking, what do you want me to do? And they told me to get out of the building. But at that point, I'm thinking, I'm not sure. I think this guidance office is pretty safe. So I'm just gonna hang here for a few minutes and I actually go into my little office and I crouch behind the desk. And that's when it really hit me because I had this nine month old daughter back at my house and her mom, and I'm wondering, am I gonna get to be a father still? And I just spent three minutes focused on my family, missing them, feeling sad, not scared, just sad that this day was happening. But after about three minutes of this, I decided to leave the building and I went out the loading dock. And as I go out the loading dock, out from behind the dumpster, state trooper points his gun at me. Thank God he had good training because he didn't fire. And he ran up to me and he goes, where's Andy and how do I get there? So I gave him directions. I got myself to safety, still not really sure what happened. Well, Andy did surrender. He walked out the front of the building. I didn't see this, this is as told to me. And he lays his gun down and lights a cigarette. As it turns out, his shot was a warning shot. Later that day, I went back to that softball field and it was one of the most surreal and profound images that I will always remember because in that softball field are backpacks, shoes, papers, musical instruments. There's parts of the fence where it was literally run over by all the students and staff. And what had, hap what had happened is that teachers in high heels were helped over the fence. We had a student in a wheelchair and he was carried over that fence. And while it looked like a UFO had come along and plucked everyone out of that field and taken them away, what it really was is that all those students and staff somehow, by helping each other, found their way to the safety of the community, to the safety of the woods and the nearby homes and the nearby stores. So what that image represents to me, as eerie as it is, is the fact that on that day, even though we didn't really know what to do, we actually trusted each other, we took care of each other, and in my mind, it was 800 heroes that somehow worked together on a day where we, a lot of people could have gotten hurt, but instead, no one got hurt. And I thank my 800 colleagues on that day that helped make it as positive as we could. Thank you. Paul Knoll, ladies and gentlemen.
Paul Knowles spent close to 20 years in education as a guidance counselor, assistant principal, and principal. Paul lives in Maine with his two daughters and, as he describes it, a menagerie of animals. By the way, Paul's story came to us through the Moth Pitch Line. That's how we met him. So if you have a story to tell, you can do the same thing. Either record a pitch right on our website, that's themoth.org, or call 877-799-MOTH. That's 877-799-6684. We listen to all the pitches, and we're developing lots of them for our shows around the country. We'll be back in a moment with more stories from this live event in Portland, Maine. Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jay Allison. You're listening to a live moth event held in Portland, Maine, with the theme Eyewitness. Here's your host, Dan Kennedy. So, when I asked our next storyteller, what's one thing you hope to see happen in your lifetime? She said, two things. For my parents to be friends, and I said, oh, that is the sweetest thing I've ever heard. And then she said, and also for uh, world energy efficiency. <laughs> I like that combo. Please welcome Melissa Coleman. just moved into my dream home. It was bright and beautiful with solar panels on the roof for electricity and hot water. It had well-insulated walls and triple-glazed windows. In short, it was everything that a girl who'd grown up as a back-to-the-land hippie child could wish for. <laughs> Not to mention indoor plumbing, and dual flush toilets. <laughs> See, I was born at home with no electricity or running water in a small cabin on the coast of Maine that my father and pregnant mother had just built by hand for $680. When we wanted to go to the bathroom, we would walk out to the little A-frame outhouse and use dried sphagnum peat moss for toilet paper. Seriously. My, if we needed water, my mother or father would walk out a quarter of a mile down a path in the woods to a spring, and they would fill buckets that they would carry back on a wooden yoke that fit across their shoulders. When my little sister Heidi and I wanted a snack during the day, we would wander out into the gardens to see what was ripe. It might be cherry tomatoes still warm from the sun, fresh strawberries, peas in the pod that we'd eat right there on the spot. And invariably, there would be, you know, a group of nude farm apprentices <laughs> harvesting vegetables and weeding without any clothes on. And at the first sign of a car, 
One of them would stand up and yell, pants dance! And they'd all scramble into their clothes and someone would go down and greet the customers at the farm stand, <laughs> which was our primary source of income. So it was on a day like this, a hot, humid day in July, that um, I was seven years old, my little sister Heidi was three, and my baby sister Clara, who's here tonight, had just been born. My father was out in the garden working, and he, oh, and my grandmother was coming. My father was working, and he said to the apprentices, um, could you please keep your clothes on today? My mother is coming. And my mother was in the farmhouse um, trying to clean her $680 home for my proper grandmother from New Jersey. But my sister Heidi and I, we just wanted to play. We were running around, we'd already woke up the baby, she was crying, my mother was like, please, just please, can you let me clean the house in peace? Go outside. So out we went and I climbed up the ladder to my favorite place to play, which was this loft above the woodshed. And Heidi came to the bottom of the ladder and she looked up at me with these big blue eyes, and she said, Uppy, help me up. And sometimes I would help her up the ladder because she was afraid to climb it by herself. But it was really hot that day up in the loft, and I was irritable. And I said, no, you go play. And a little while later, my mom came to the bottom of the ladder, and she looked up, and she said, Lissy, is Heidi up there with you? And I said, no. And she said, well, come down. Your grandmother's here. Come say hi. So I climbed down the ladder, and the next thing I heard was my mother's scream. She had found my sister floating face down in the pond with her little red boat, toy boat, floating nearby. And I, I no longer can see clearly what I did or didn't see that day. Part of me thinks that I was there at the pond and I, I somehow didn't save her. But all I can see are these big blue eyes looking up at me from the bottom of that ladder. And my grandmother, she wanted to say, you know, if only you'd had electricity and a phone. But I knew that if only I had helped her up the ladder that day, then my father wouldn't be sitting behind the woodshed with her in his arms, rocking back and forth and crying in a way I'd never seen him cry before. My mother wouldn't be walking down the paths in the woods calling her name. And I wouldn't be sitting there in the loft at the end of that day, watching the light stream, the low afternoon sunlight stream through the window, full of this dust that seemed as heavy as the weight of that shame settling on my shoulders. And so you can imagine 
how strange, difficult, hard it was. The fact that my new, perfect, grown-up home with its guilt-free electricity also happened to have a pond that was very similar to that pond we'd had as a child. The way the cattails punctuated the slippery clay edges. The way the peepers were so loud at nights in spring, it felt as if I was praying for sleep in the center of that pond. And most importantly, the fact that my own daughters, three years old, Emily and Heidi, had not yet learned how to swim. And so I did the things we do. I talked to my husband about planting a big hedge to block the view. I took the girls to swimming lessons. But every day, that weight on my shoulders only seemed to get heavier. And so I began to talk to my parents, imagine that, about what had happened and trying to understand it. And finally, one day, I was driving with my mother, and I told her that I'd always felt that it was my fault, that if only I had helped my sister up the ladder that day. Uh, I just knew that things would have been different. And my mother said, oh, God, it wasn't your fault. She said, I was the last one that saw Heidi that day. And I never told anyone this because I didn't want your father to blame me. But I sent her out to play with her little red boat. And I had always wished, you know, that I just stopped cleaning the house, took her in. And when she said this, it was, it was as if she had just lifted that yoke that we use for carrying water right up off my shoulders and put it on her own in the sort of ultimate maternal gesture. And it was so liberating. It was, I was not to blame. And I just, I was so grateful to her for that. But I could see that she was still struggling and it was heavy for her to carry it alone. And I didn't know what to do. And not to mention the fact that I went and wrote a book about it. And I still didn't know what to do until preparing for this moth, I remembered something that I had forgotten. Not long after I spoke to my mother, I told my father we were on a hike and I told him what she had said and how liberating that was for me, but how much she still struggled. And he said, oh, she wasn't to blame. I was the last one to see Heidi that day. I was working in the garden, and I saw her go down to the pond with her little red boat. And if only, if only I had stopped working and gone down with her, things might have been different. And when he said this, I, 
it was so similar to what my mother had just said, and I was so caught up in my own guilt that I didn't realize how important it was that he had taken that yoke off my mother's shoulder and put it on his own. But neither is it his weight to bear. He had never told my mother this because they had only spoken for a handful of times. A handful of times since they separated after my sister died. We all think that we need to carry these things alone, that somehow, somehow that will make it different. But we don't need to carry them. And we are not alone. The death of a child is probably one of the hardest things that can happen to a family. But we don't need to make it sadder. What we can do is help each other to love each other during this time we have together today. Thank you. Melissa Coleman. Melissa Coleman, ladies and gentlemen. Mm. Melissa Coleman's New York Times bestseller is entitled This Life is in Your Hands, One Dream, 60 Acres, and a Family's Heartbreak. Her travel writing has appeared in the New York Times, Condé Nast Traveler, and other publications. Visit themoth.org to find out more. To share any of the stories you hear on the Moth Radio Hour, go to our website, where you can stream the stories for free or send a link to your friends and family. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Jay Allison, producer of this radio show. In this hour, we're bringing you a live moth event from Portland, Maine. The host is Dan Kennedy, and the theme of the show is Eyewitness. This, um, you know, I got involved with the moth because it was always really funny for the, um, and what I mean by always is the very first night that I did it 13 years ago, and then I realized everyone's also got very beautiful, emotionally poignant and complex stories, and uh, I can't wait to eat alone in my hotel room tonight, (laughs) shoving down the feelings that are coming up that I'm not mature enough to process yet. (laughs) With the Holiday Inn doing that. When I asked our next storyteller, uh, what is one thing that you would like to see happen in your lifetime, he said, I would like to everyone, I would like for everyone to have the perspective of Earth that I've had. He didn't stutter when he said it like I did. He's a very confident man. <laughs> Please welcome Captain Rick Hoke. Awesome. I have very vivid memories of July 23rd, 1973, because it was a day that I almost died. I was a Navy test pilot in Maryland, and I'd just taken off in a supersonic fighter jet. I wasn't going to go supersonic. I was taking it into the 
landing pattern to do some hands-off automatic carrier landing tests. Put the landing gear back down, put the flaps down, and I felt a thump. I heard and felt a thump. You do not, when flying a Navy jet airplane, want to hear a thump. <laughs> and then I heard another thump. And I looked into the cockpit and looked at my gauges, and I saw that my left engine was winding down. I'd lost one of my engines. Other things in the cockpit didn't make sense. And then I looked back up through the windshield and I saw the waters of the Chesapeake Bay coming up at me. I had pitched over and I knew then that I was going to die. It was not panic, it was just a realization. Isn't this interesting? This, this is the way it ends. And I thought, no, I don't have to. I can pull this little handle. And I reached down outboard of my left thigh, pulled a handle, and immediately the canopy blew off. My seat was ejected. My parachute opened. And when the chute opened, I looked down. All I could see was a ball of fire. And I figured, well, the plane must have exploded when it hit the water. I was in the parachute for 15 seconds before I went into the water. It turned out that two of my fuel tanks had exploded while I was in the airplane. And if I had waited two seconds to pull that handle, my chute would not have opened before I hit the water. Well, fast forward always interested in going faster and higher and doing cool things. In 1983, after having been accepted at NASA as an astronaut, I flew on my first space shuttle mission. The vehicle was Challenger. The captain was Bob Crippen, who flew on the first flight of the space shuttle. And the crew included myself, Norm Thaggard, John Fabian and Sally Ride. We were four. We were four rookies. And we know Sally passed away within the last year, sadly. It's an extraordinary experience to lift off from the, the launch pad and rocket into space, transition from zero miles an hour to 17,500 miles an hour five miles every second, going around the earth every, every hour and a half. People ask, the, mo the most asked question that I've ever gotten is, what is it like to be in space? Second most asked is, what is it like to go to the bathroom in space? <laughs> but what is it like to be in space? It's, it's almost a Zen-like, uh, holistic question. It's, it's not pointed, it's, what's, what's it like? And I say, well, do you remember the first day that you rode a tricycle? Or the first day that you rode a bicycle without training wheels? Or the first day that you drove the family car without your mother or your father sitting next to you? You're seeing the world in a new dimension that you had never seen before. And so I say, going into space is like becoming a child again.
Well, let's fast forward another couple years. I was getting ready to fly my third space shuttle flight, which again was to be on Challenger. It was known as probably one of the riskier flights that NASA was ever going to fly. Matter of fact, my boss called it Death Star. <laughs> That's leadership. <laughs> he was an astronaut. And uh, I was at a meeting with the flight controllers who were going to be managing my flight from Mission Control in Houston. And it was January 28, 1986, and we realized, we knew, of course, that Challenger was scheduled to launch that day. And the countdown began. We adjourned the meeting so we could watch it on closed circuit TV. And of course, what we saw was Challenger 73 seconds after liftoff exploding, rockets going crazily off into different directions. We knew our friends were dead. I, uh, I recall saying something like, well, I guess that's that. And, and I don't even remember what I meant by that, but it was a sense of finality, certainly a sense of finality for our friends, but also for their families. And oh, by the way, also one-fourth of our space shuttle fleet was gone. Did it matter? Were we going to be, have a space program after this at all? If you remember, this was the teacher in space flight and children all over the country, some of you probably in the audience were watching that when Krista McAuliffe, the school teacher, was killed. I went back to the office, another building at Johnson Space Center in Houston, and went up to the astronaut office and was walking down the passageway, passing my friends who were, we were all stumbling around like zombies. We, uh, there were no words to be said. Uh, we'd just shake our heads. But of course, you can't do that and keep going, and NASA had to find out what the problem was with the space shuttle, fix it find out what other problems were lurking there, waiting to kill us and fix them. And so, even though I was scheduled to command the next flight of Challenger, which was going to be in April, uh, the best we could do was, well, we'll keep training for our mission, even though we probably won't fly it, but it's something for us to do, and maybe somehow we'll get flying again within six months or so. Well, it was about five months later that I was invited into the office of my big boss, Admiral Dick Truly, and he said, Rick, um, you're going to command the next mission. And I thought, hallelujah, this, which may seem odd, but of course, all of us in the astronaut office wanted to be on that next flight. In many ways, we thought this will be the safest shuttle flight ever. <laughs> and that's important in talking to your family, your children. I, I know that when I spoke with my family and said that, this will be the safest flight ever, I could not say, and that means I will come home, because there are no guarantees. But then, uh, 
They had lived through my earlier career when I was flying airplanes off of aircraft carriers and over 100 combat missions in Vietnam. And I think you kind of breed a certain amount of uh, a sense of being bulletproof. It might happen to someone, but it won't happen to me. It won't happen to my family. And that's what helps you keep going when you lose friends left and right. So it was time to uh, launch on September 29th, 1988. And off we went. 45 seconds after liftoff, we're supersonic. I remember, and the, the crew has prepared to take off over if we have to, but the computers are running the space shuttle. And I remember as we passed through Mach 16, which is 16 times the speed of sound, that's about 14,000 miles an hour, I thought, this is incredible. This is incredible. I, I've done this twice before, but then I had the comfort of knowing that NASA had never left lost anybody in space before. And I didn't have that sense of comfort on this flight. But this is incredible. It's made by human beings. Human beings are fallible. Gosh, I hope this thing doesn't blow up. <laughs> and I thought, that's not very productive. <laughs> so I went back to watching the gauges. We got into orbit, got out of our seats, experienced that joy of, of being weightless and set about doing our task, which was to deploy a satellite to replace one that had been destroyed in the Challenger accident. We really just wanted to have a successful mission, a good launch, get the satellite out, good, good flight home, short mission. So after that satellite was deployed, we had time to reflect on what we'd done, and it was also time to reflect on our colleagues who had lost uh, 32 months prior. And each one of us had composed a paragraph that we would say in orbit, remembering them. And as the commander of the mission, I had the honor of speaking last. And I said, up here where the blue sky turns to black, to Dick, Mike, Judy, L, and Ron, Krista and Greg. Dear friends, we've resumed the journey that we promised to continue. Dear friends, your loss means we could confidently begin again. Dear friends, your dream and your spirit is in our hearts. And with that, really all of our objectives were complete. We could enjoy looking out the window, looking out at this beautiful earth below us, the hues of the green forests, the tans of the desert, the deep blues of the oceans. On the space shuttle, you're not up very high, just 200 miles, so you've got a face full of earth. You can see about 1,000 miles that way and 1,000 miles that way. Not like the folks that went to the moon who could see the earth as a marble. And I had one particular instance as I was looking down. We were on the dark side of the earth. 
and I saw the River Nile at night, floods, lights on both sides of the, of the river. After all, water is the source of life. And off in the distance, the deserts in Africa, the deserts in the Arabian Peninsula, every once in a while, every so often you'd see a pinprick of light. And I figured that that was campfires of Bedouins, people who were out there trying to survive. And I thought, we're all trying to survive. They in the desert, us in space, all of us here on Earth. And had that thought of it doesn't matter your ethnicity, your color, your religion, doesn't matter if you were in a position, actually, as we've heard earlier tonight, where you need to depend upon someone else to survive, you will figure out a way to uh, help each other. So that was, uh, that was as close to being religious as, I, as I've gotten, I think. Um, well, it was time to come home, and I've never slept very well on a space mission. You can imagine, it's time to go to sleep. You put shades over the windows so these hour-and-a-half sunrises don't wake you up. <laughs> and then you start thinking about, God, this is neat. This is just wonderful, and tomorrow we're going to come home, and folks are going to be cheering, and we're going to say, well, the adrenaline goes boom. And you know, I'm not going to sleep for another hour. There's no way. So I'd untether myself, float up to a window. My favorite view is of the Himalayas looking down on Mount Everest and seeing it from the side and then seeing it from the top and then seeing it from the other side. And then I'd go back and try to get some more sleep. Well, finally, it was time to come home. And in order to come home, you have to slow down this very heavy very fast spacecraft. So over Australia, you turn the space shuttle around, fire your rockets called retro rockets to slow you down by about 100 miles an hour. It's very important where you do that burn, we call it, over Australia, and the duration of it. If you slow yourself down too much, you get into too steep an angle, you go dive into the atmosphere and you burn up and you're dead. If you don't fire the, the rockets enough, you're shallow and you're like a skipping stone, like you're throwing a stone across a pond and you skip off the Earth's atmosphere and you don't come back. So here we come. It all worked. I remember as we were at one point, I, I said, hey, there's Hawaii. There's Hawaii. There goes Hawaii. <laughs> That's how fast we were moving. Crossed over the, the California coastline at Mach 8 at about 120,000 feet and came in over the landing strip at Edwards Air Force Base in California. And this is where the commander gets to show his stuff because he's going to land it. And it's a 200,000-pound brick. <laughs> sort, it sort of flies. <laughs> and so at 40,000 feet here, subsonic, below the speed of sound, passing overhead, sink rates of 11,000 feet per minute, 300 miles an hour. You get to 1,200 feet, 
pull back slightly on the stick, shallow the glide angle, slow down, touch down at 200 miles an hour, and roll out. You only have one chance at this because it's a glider. And uh, as we've said, it's better to die than look bad. <laughs> and fortunately, we didn't do either. And um, so, I, so I did my thing. After we got cleaned up, we opened the hatch and went down and were greeted at the bottom of the steps by Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush the head of NASA and my good friend, Admiral Dick Truly. And we can tell by the smiles on their faces we'd accomplished our mission. We'd brought America back into space. So, a final question. Why do people take risks? Why do people take such risks? In my case, I love the adventure. I love the thought that we were helping the country push its boundaries farther out, and I knew I was working in the company of extraordinary people. And that's what made the risk worth it for me. Thank you. That was Captain Frederick Howe. Captain Houck spent 29 years in the U.S. Navy as a combat pilot, test pilot, and NASA astronaut. His awards include two Department of Defense Distinguished Service Medals, the NASA Distinguished Service Medal, and the Distinguished Flying Cross. He was inducted into the Astronaut Hall of Fame in 2001. That's it for this episode of the Moth Radio Hour. We hope you'll join us next time. And that's the story from the Moth. Your host this hour was Dan Kennedy, author most recently of the novel American Spirit and the host of the Moth Podcast. The stories in this show were directed by Meg Bowles. The rest of the Moth's directorial staff includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Jeunesse, and Jennifer Hickson, with production support from Whitney Jones and Kirsty Bennett. Moth Stories Are True is remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. This Moth event was recorded live in Portland, Maine by Pete Nordis. It was produced in cooperation with MPBN, the Maine Public Broadcasting Network. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Tortoise, Ariel M., and John Zorn. The Moth is produced for radio by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This hour was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. To find out more about our podcast, for information on pitching your own story, and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly open mic story slam competition. February's theme 
is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.